Welcome to Sanity, a podcast to help you keep yours in today's divisive political climate. I'm your host, Audrey Scagnelli, and I hope you'll join me in this quest for optimism in a post-2016 world. This week, we're joined by my friend Erica Anderson, who I've known for almost a decade. She's an author, a speaker, the host of the podcast, Worth Your Time, and the digital marketing director for the Independent Women's Forum. I think what I admire most about Erica as a communicator is her ability to effectively express differences of opinions with respect and decency and grace, which is all too rare in the world we're living in. So Erica, it's a pleasure to have you on Sanity. Well, I'm so glad to be here in a sane environment, which is very hard to find these days. (laughs) It is. And I think kind of to kick off our conversation, I would love to dive right into that. You wrote an article last year on Pathios. The title of it was, We Disagree, I Still Respect You. And you ended your piece writing, That's How You Start a Conversation. In this really tense climate that we're in today, how do you embody that when it gets tough, when the the topics of the day become very personal and become very divisive very quickly? I think it's a matter of looking at someone's humanity. I like to remember that everyone is somebody's child or somebody's mother or somebody's brother, and that most people, most people are not doing something or saying or believing in something because they're a bad person or because they want harm to come to someone. They usually believe or stand for something because it's something that they really believe is going to make life better for other people or make the world a better place. Um, And many times we disagree on what the path towards solutions for social ills are or all kinds of different issues. But to stop and remember that most people have good intentions, I think is a really good place to start when you're dealing with those kinds of things. Hmm. You have been a voice and champion for those impacted by addiction and by loss. It's a very personal thing for you and your family. You recently came out with your first book, Leaving Cloud Nine, about your husband's experience with this. How in in this particular aspect have you seen people come together and put humanity and people above politics? Well, that the addiction issue that's facing our country right now is is a great example of how we are working together because it's um, a very bipartisanly supported effort to help people that are struggling with addiction in our country, which I'm sure many people listening know that there's like 130 people that die every day from a drug addiction every day in this country. And the numbers have just skyrocketed in the past several years specifically for a variety of reasons. But thankfully, both sides of the aisle, Republicans, Democrats, or even people who are non-political agree that there's a problem we need to come together and fix it. And that's why one of the only bipartisan pieces of legislation to really pass through the House and the Senate and be signed by the president last year was a massive package to fund addiction efforts in terms of it covers um, education, prevention, recovery, all kinds of tools to help people dealing with this before, during, and after it comes into their lives. And so I think we've found a place of agreement here, and that's 
knowing that we need tools and also having compassion for people. I think in the past, there has been a stigma and still continues to be a stigma about people that suffer from addiction. But there has been a tide turning towards compassion, understanding and recognizing that there is a true disease. A lot of times mental illness is involved in this. Um, Many times it's maybe not even someone's fault that they have become addicted. And so finding common ground there has been really good. Now, there are a lot of other things that go with that moving parts in terms of what are we funding? You know, how are the drugs getting here? There are a lot of pieces that come with this, but I'm glad that we found a place that we can meet in the middle, at least right now to say, people need help. This is a crisis and we have to do something right now. I myself really work hard to separate politics and the ugliness that can come with it from policy and finding bridges and building bridges to get people to agree towards solving a a problem. And I think right now that is sometimes easier said than done. And I have looked to you as somebody who I think has navigated being conservative, being a Republican, not always being pleased with some of the language that we see used. How have you kind of walked that path as, unfortunately, this is this is kind of our reality now. This is the new normal. Well, I think I've grown a lot since I came to Washington, D.C. back when I was 24 or so, not really knowing much at all, and transformed from a very partisan, um, not a person that was ever mean, because that's just not who I am, but a very partisan uh, person that probably used a lot of harsher right-wing rhetoric back in the old days to someone that has gained a lot of wisdom over my time working in politics and just with people and becoming a real adult and all of those things. And just recognizing that nothing is really black and white. There's a lot of nuance in every issue. And um, that, again, the intention behind what people are doing is usually good and to just recognize that and respect people. I think um, respect is highly, well, I don't know if it's underrated or overrated, but well, it's not overrated, but um, (laughs) it's not um, coming into the picture as much as much as it should, I would say, you know, you kind of just have to recognize that you can't control everything. Everybody's not going to agree with you and that's okay. Um, and just arm yourself with knowledge and facts and your own personal experiences and do the best that you can. And, and in the end, if someone still thinks you're wrong, well, that's okay. Um, they're not a bad person for thinking that. And just kind of finding your confidence in, in what you know and what you believe and kind of just being strong in that and just accepting the fact that there are going to be people that disagree with you and that's okay. So I guess, I guess I kind of just think that way. Can you talk about a bipartisan friendship that you've had or, or maybe something that happened while you were in Washington that caused you to shift gears or at least see more gray? Because I can relate to that when I moved to D.C. First time around, I was 16 and I you know, saw things much more black and white. And as you get older, things become more complex and you see more sides of things. And that's largely because you meet new people and they change your perspective. 
Yeah. Well, I have one of my best friends um, is on the other side of the aisle than me politically. And we have been friends since college. And we've actually both ended up in D.C., not related to college. We went to college in Indiana. So it was kind of a nice bonus to have a good friend that moved here there around the same time I did. And we've had a lot of conversations about different things. And I, I know that talking with her has helped me to kind of find some footing and understanding of what maybe the left thinks about certain issues and why. And I know that she would say the same about me, even though (laughs) there are some things that sometimes we just have to drop, like because we both sometimes can get emotional about it. I would say that it's made our friendship stronger in the fact that we've been willing to talk about things and are able to accept that we have different different approaches to how to solve problems in this country. And that is the, you know, I already said it, but that is something I learned through her that, that knowing that someone else has a good intention, that's something that I discovered in a conversation with her probably 10 years ago when we were talking about some economic issue, I think. And we just kind of stopped and we were like, look, essentially we want the same thing. We want people to thrive. We want people to have jobs. We want people to be able to support their families. And in the end, we just have different beliefs on what the best way is to get people to that place. When I was able to recognize that and and see that she was coming from a good place, just like I was coming from a good place, it really changed the whole game for me. And so I always try to see that, like even looking at Like right now, for example, you know, to use a a trendy person, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I do not agree with much that she says, but I can truly see her passion. She seems to really be coming from a genuine place when she says what she says. And so I respect that about her. Like, I don't agree with her. I think she's wrong. But I also think that she's still deserving of respect and that, you know, if she's willing to have those conversations with people that disagree with her, good, you know? And so I don't want to lose that. I just believe so much in like making the conversations happen and not shutting people down. Like we see Ben Shapiro and people like that getting kicked off campus. And I think that's so dangerous because um, we we shouldn't be losing that ability to talk and converse and recognize like people are not recognizing his his humanity when they tell him he's a danger because he he you know Ben Shapiro like he's not he's not a dangerous person <laughs> but I mean there may be people that are but he's not one of them and so anyway yeah just that that conversation aspect I think is so important mm-hmm. and I think talking about that on college campuses is incredibly important. Uh, There was a a poll that just came out this week that said about 70% of the country thinks that colleges, universities should be the ones that are leading the way on changing the discourse and creating an environment for civility and respect. But there's a tension between that and the concept of safe spaces. And to me, a safe space is one where you feel comfortable expressing yourself and exchanging ideas, challenging each other. But I think that is easier said than done. And part of the way we get there is having open minds and having respect for each other. Yeah. And recognizing that no one is ever going to change or even see the light of day if if they are wrong, if you're shutting them down and not allowing them to talk, they're just going to get angry about that. (laughs) 
I always go back to the story I heard last year, and, and you may have heard it, um, about this black man who decided he was going to befriend members of the KKK. Which sounds crazy. And no one would ever expect or, you know, tell someone they should do something like that. But he did it. He spent time with them. And there have been like something like a dozen or something crazy like that who have now you know, left the KKK, are really great friends with this guy. And had he not been willing to talk with them and realize, yeah, they're hateful people, they don't get it, like there's something they're missing. But if he hadn't been willing to talk with them and recognize their humanity, um, they would probably still be in the KKK. So there is a benefit to talking to even people that we think are the worst of the worst. I mean, barring, you know, a serial killer on death row, those kinds of people are worth talking to sometimes because... You're never going to break through. You're never going to make change unless you are willing to connect with them on a human level. You've spent your career as a communicator and as the world around us has changed in terms of technology and information overload, I think sometimes it can be really difficult to break through and share that message get it out there and, and see a ripple effect. What have you seen that has been effective in terms of opening people's minds in that way? I think personal relationships. I think when someone that you know is a part of, say, a social problem that's happening in this country and you see a personal story, then it affects you in a way that you wouldn't if it was a stranger or you know, a policy that you saw a politician talking about on the news. Um, so that's why I think it's important to share stories and be honest, and, but share them without expectation. I think social media, in, I mean, social media has its ills, but it also has its positives. And I think Facebook and Instagram for specifically, um, they have given people an opportunity to share their stories in a way that wouldn't have been seen before. And we also have this culture right now of more vulnerability and it being more acceptable to share your personal stories um, without sounding like you're trying to preach necessarily. I encourage people to share their stories from whatever perspective they're coming because it really can change your mind. Like I would say one issue for me that has changed, um, you know, is is the issue of criminal justice reform. That's not something that I really ever thought about so much in the past. But, you know, a lot has happened in the criminal justice system in the past several years, you know, including these very high profile shootings. And by listening to people that maybe are not on the same side of the aisle as me or listening to people who are more involved with this on a more personal level, I've really shifted my thinking on that. And I, I think there really is a problem. And, you know, I had to be willing to listen and open my mind to not necessarily what I was hearing from, say, conservative talking points about it. And I don't know, you know, where I land specifically on all the issues when it comes to that. But I do know that I've shifted. And that's because I let myself be open to hearing the stories of people that aren't like me. And I think that's super important right now. Even if you don't think you're going to change, be open to hearing it. You can't push it out just because you don't like it. Um, because you may change in a way that you don't know or intend to, but in a, but it turns out in the end that that was the way that you needed to go. And I think that's another area where we have seen some actual meaningful bipartisan work, like the First Step Act that passed in, in December. I do feel like there are these kind of 
uh, rays of hope when you start talking about specific areas for reform. But that's that's a big deal to get the number of people at the table and take a first step towards achieving meaningful criminal justice reform. That criminal justice bill and then the opioid package are the two probably biggest examples in the past two years of good bipartisan things that have happened under this administration. You, for for quite some time, were an author of the Bright newsletter, which is put out under the overhead of the Federalist, the news site, and it's written by five different right-leaning conservative women. It offers a quick take on news of the day, but I enjoy reading it largely because I think that it humanizes the news and comes from a very pragmatic, practical place. And the tone of it is very different from the kind of tone that you'll see on Donald Trump's Twitter feed. And it's one that is often respectful and compassionate and calm and therefore not headline grabbing, but it is something that I look forward to reading. And I would just love if you could talk a little bit about what your time writing that newsletter was like and what you learned from that process. Yeah, I mean, it was fun to write a newsletter for women. You know, I work for the Independent Women's Forum and, you know, I'm I'm always drawn to things that are kind of women focused, being a woman. But of course, there was already and there are several newsletters kind of already out there for women, the skim being the biggest one that everybody knows about. But oftentimes conservative and more kind of independent minded women feel a little bit left out or not covered as they should be. There's a kind there is a bias against conservatism in general sometimes in the media. And so Bright was just an opportunity not to be like, this is a conservative newsletter, but to say like, this is just a newsletter written by women who have a more conservative ideological perspective. And because of that perspective, we may cover the news a little differently. We may bring in stories that you're not going to see in a place like the skim, um, you know, stories that are going to appeal to um, an audience that's looking for something different that doesn't that isn't part of that mainstream news audience or doesn't want to be. And so it was really fun to be able to highlight not only um, just like fun stories, but also just, you know, working in, in media and kind of this political space, you know, a lot of people who are authors or, you know, a lot of people who are doing some cool reporting um, or will alert you to stories that are happening that you may not have seen. And so we get to highlight our friend's work or, you know, showcase, you know, the study that you would never see reported on in the Washington Post type of thing. So it was really fun. And we got to mix politics and beauty and entertainment and a lot of fun celebrity stuff. Um, so it wasn't just politics. It was really combining politics and culture from a more conservative perspective. Regarding your work with the Independent Women's Forum, one of the products that you have been part of is Champion Women, which spotlights women and their work and efforts to lead and often rise above toxic language. Um, I'd love if you could talk a little bit about Champion Women and what being part of something like that has been like. Yeah, Champion Women is a project of Independent Women's Voice. And basically, the idea came out of this culture of not having respect um, for other people and not engaging in dialogue with others. Um, And, you know, there is a bit of a 
there is kind of like a more mainstream feminist message out there that if you don't abide by a progressive agenda in your politics, your voice doesn't matter. Um, or, or you, the feminist movement won't, will not defend you. Um, but we wanted to say, Hey, like this is, these are my words, but feminism, real feminism, maybe more in the words of Carly Fiorina, she has a quote that says, um, you know, real feminism is the belief that a woman can be and do basically whatever she wants to be and do. And, and we believe and respect that. And we want to uplift and empower all women's voices. And we don't have to agree with them. They can be on the left. And we want to hear them. But we also want to hear voices on the right. And we want to promote this idea that it's better to have all voices in the arena and to converse and to respect ideological diversity and not silence or shame someone if they don't go along with the, you know, monolithic viewpoint that the media and sort of the, the feminist left paints women into. Um, we wanted to take a stand against sexism and misogyny in general because that is happening and it's happening to women on the right and the left. Um, we have examples of, you know, fat shaming of Kirsten Gillibrand and, um, you know, people making fun of Sarah Sanders looks. There's all kinds of examples of women still being treated in these ways. And so we want to defend both women on the right and the left that are dealing with this kind of stuff. And so champion women kind of encompasses a variety of things that we want to tackle, but there's never any shortage of things to talk about when it comes to those issues. I'm thinking about different efforts and organizations that are trying to build bridges here. And so many of them are women-run. Some are specifically talking with women. Your your podcast right now is highlights and champions women doing interesting things. Have you seen that as well, that women are kind of taking the lead or, or getting particularly involved? I don't know if I've seen that in particular, but I do think that there is kind of a fun movement of women taking on leadership roles. I don't, you know, I'm definitely not a subscriber of vote for someone because they're a woman by any means, but I think it's fun to see more women stepping up into the possibility of leadership. And then hopefully if they are the best person for the job, they get the job. You know, we've saw so many women elected to Congress this season, which was cool. And then just in other roles, too, you're you're seeing women climb the ladder or whatever. I don't necessarily think that's good or bad. I think it's great if they want to. And I hope women that want to feel empowered. But I also do think women in general have a tendency towards being more of a peacemaker kind of personality. And so they may be the best people to try to kind of forge these more these paths towards more dialogue and civility. Um, I think they have kind of maybe the better personality set for that kind of a thing. And so I hope we see more of it. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I personally cannot stand when women are put into a bucket. And if you're a woman, therefore you believe X, Y, and Z. But I, but I have seen a larger number of people taking leadership roles in terms of trying to create more civility in our national dialogue that are women. I'm writing a piece right now that needs to get beyond the first sentence, but I'm really kind of researching right now some organizations and people and places that are leading the way in this area. 
So um, I have you guys on the list of places to mention. I hopefully will find out a little bit more about that and let you know if I see women doing just that. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. One other thing about your life, Erica, that I just really admire is you're originally from Indiana and you lived in DC for a long time and you now live back home in Indiana and you're able to juggle 50,000 things. I really don't know how you do it. You're a mom of two gorgeous kids and you go back to DC as needed and you also do work for the Steamboat Institute and have a podcast and have also a huge passion for being physically active and physically fit. A, how do you do all of that in 24 hours a day? And B, when I worked on the campaign trail, I lived in Iowa for some time and then I lived in Ohio for for a number of months. And that was one of the best eye-opening, wonderful experiences I've ever had. It just totally changed my perspective. I I spent most of my life living in Florida and Washington, D.C., and getting to know people from across the country just opened my eyes to so many different perspectives and ways of life that not just political, but just kind of generally speaking. So how has that kind of experience been for you as you as you live in Indiana, but also go and deal with D.C. on occasion? <laughs> well, I said the first thing I noticed when I moved back to Indiana, there were two things. Number one, in the coffee shops, in the Starbucks, um, nobody was talking about politics. Everyone was like having a Bible study. And number two, everyone was wearing hoodies and no one was wearing a suit. So that was like the first culture shock change. Um, and also refreshing to see all the people, these people talking about God instead of talking about the midterm elections. <laughs> um, but secondly, I love living in Indiana and being able to go back to DC. I feel like I'm pretty much there on a monthly basis, but it's kind of nice to have kind of that double life and not have fully left the city. And I often feel like I'm still in the city just from the behind my computer screen where I spend all day working. It's it's really nice to have the best of both worlds, um, especially since Indiana is much cheaper and I have to pay for daycare. So speaking of the first part of your question, um, yeah, I have a lot of, I say I'm a multi-passionate person. I just I do have a lot of passions and I'm just a very go-go, goal-oriented person, um, not detail-oriented. I wish I was a little better about that, budgeting and things like that, but I'm a very proactive person. I might have a mantra of done is better than perfect. I wouldn't call myself a perfectionist really um, simply because I I like to accomplish things. I like to get them done. I like to check things off my list and I like to experiment. It's kind of that throw something at the wall and see what sticks type of situation and not everything does. But when you find something that works, you prioritize it and you make it work. And so I get up very early. I've been getting up, well, not every day. Some days I've been getting up at 445, but yeah, it's hard, but it's like, I realize how much this extra hour that I've built into my day has really been helping me squeeze some extra stuff in. I try to be very smart with my time. Like I do work out probably four to five days a week, but I do a lot of that at my house. And so I try to plan out to-do lists and just make sure that I'm getting everything done that I need to. And, you know, I do have, my kids are in daycare. They are not home with me because sometimes people say, well, how do you do it with the kids? I'm like, I don't like, they're not here. (laughs) 
So um, that's hard. I really do have a hard time leaving them at daycare because I just love them and I love being their mom and it makes me sad to leave them. But I also love working and really get a lot of fulfillment out of this. Plus, we need someone else to have a job besides my husband. So it all kind of works out. And luckily, my husband gets off work very early in the day, about 3.15. And so they don't have to be there for too long, which makes me feel just better in my heart about it. It is kind of amazing the way that work is structured today. And as, as it's continuing to shift and shift and shift, we are able to do things remotely and do things all over the world. And it's it has a lot of pros. I think there are some cons. You feel like maybe you're always on. I sometimes feel like that, but, but yes, yes. And, and IWF, um, is just, is a really great example and model of how flex workplace can really work for women and families. I mean, we don't have an office. Every single one of our employees is a woman and most of us have little kids. We work on conference calls. We have buckets of emails. We have quarterly staff meetings in DC. We're very productive. We're very flexible. Nobody says anything if they hear baby crying in the background or if you have kids home for a sick day. They trust their employees. And because of that, we get a lot done. And uh, they really are a great example of how that can work. Hmm. Well, as we kind of close the conversation, I would just love to ask, what are you most optimistic about right now, right here today? What am I most optimistic about? I'm most optimistic about learning. I'm trying to learn, as you mentioned, I, in the space of addiction, um, ending addiction, dealing with the opioid crisis, but I, and I'm learning a lot. And the more I learn, the more I feel like I'm going to find a way to really help in my writing and in my efforts personally to help people that are dealing with this kind of stuff or prevent people from having to ever step foot into it. And so I'm hopeful that that there is a purpose behind all this interest that I have in this. I know that there is and that that purpose and the things that I'm learning and writing and, and advocating for are actually going to make a difference for people and that others are going to kind of glom onto that same mentality and help other people in their lives. So for example, mentorship is something that I really believe in that can change lives, that can save people from many things. I'm having a mentor in your life as a kid and that's why I'm doing Big Brothers, Big Sisters. So when I see people doing things like that, um, that gives me hope. And that makes me optimistic for the future because I see more and more people investing their time and their lives into that. And so that's a very long-winded answer to your question. But those are the kinds of things that make me feel optimistic. When I see people doing things like that, investing their lives into other people's lives, there's always hope when you see that happening. I don't think that's long-winded at all. I think that's what it's all about. Humans working to help fellow humans live a better life. Thank you so much, Erica. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for having me on, I'm excited. Take care.